So when you're reading books about preaching or taking a class about preaching or talking with others about preaching, they always tell you you've got to get one big idea across, right? The central idea, the proposition, the main point, and here it is. I'm just going to give it away up front. That way when you fall asleep in 10 minutes, you've already got the main idea, right? So here it is. Trusting in God results in transformation by God. That's the main point. Now, we're going to do something ambitious today. We're going to try to cover two chapters. So I want to give you this up front so that you don't lose sight of it as we go through the story. Trusting in God results in transformation by God. You cannot come to God and embrace him by faith, truly experience who he is, his power, and not be changed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Throughout Jacob's life, and that's where we're at in the book of Genesis, throughout his life, we see time and time again a picture of a man who is in need of change. He's a schemer. He's manipulative. He relies on his cunning and on his strategy and on his strength to best his opponents, whether it be cheating his brother out of his birthright or deceiving his father into giving him the family blessing or even by tricking his uncle Laban and fleeing. Though he is the bearer of God's promise, the recipient of God's gracious covenant blessings, Jacob trusts himself. But who he has been is not who he will always be. And praise God, isn't it that way for many of us? As well. After Jacob tricked his father and cheated his brother, you remember a few weeks back, he left Canaan uh, to flee to Haran. His brother wanted to kill him, so he had to get out of Dodge. And as he's on his way, he sees this vision at a place in the wilderness that would later be called Bethel, the house of God. He saw that stairway to heaven with the angels ascending and descending, and God himself standing there at the top. And God had there promised to give to Jacob and to his offspring the land of Canaan to bless him and to bless all the families of the earth through him. He'd promised to be with Jacob and to protect him and to one day bring him home. For 20 long years, Jacob had had lived there in Haran, far from home with his relatives. He had arrived with nothing, but now he was returning home with two wives He only intended to get one, but he got two. You remember that story. The deceiver had been deceived by his manipulative father-in-law. Through those wives and through their two servants, who he had taken as surrogates, he now had 11 sons. The promise is beginning to be fulfilled. He had one daughter. He had many herds of animals. God had spoken to him in Haran and told him, return. It's time to go home. Go back to your homeland. And God had once again promised him, I will be with you. Indeed, God had prospered him there in Haran and had intervened to protect him from Laban's wrath as Jacob had fled in secret. And God said, I'm not going anywhere. I'll still be with you. The danger behind him was now dealt with. He had escaped from Laban. But now he must face the looming danger that is ahead. To go home meant he had to face his brother. And his brother Esau had an axe to grind. He wanted to kill him and get revenge. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. Now Jacob, as we mentioned, had always trusted in himself to this point. He'd always schemed, always come up with a plan, 
He was always resourceful, but how was he going to face this new test? As he had to go and face his brother, what would he do? Well, what we see Jacob do is he actually steps out in faith for the first time. So that's all by way of introduction to catch us up to speed. I want to jump into our big text this morning there in chapter 32. And what we see right off the bat is this, that, that Jacob's faith, as he steps out in faith, his faith is encouraged. God encourages his faith as he expresses that faith. Look in verses 1 and 2. We see that Jacob went on his way. He's obeying God, following his command. He's heading home. And it says, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. His faith is encouraged as he sees these divine messengers. What's the significance of this? Is this just random? You know, as you're, maybe you play this game with your kids on a road trip. See how many cows you can count. First one to find a a red barn wins, right? Oh, look, there's a, a windmill. Oh, look, there's some angels. Is that what's going on here? No, this is significant. The revelation of angelic activity, the fact that God showed this to him and gave him eyes to see his divine activity and presence, it was affirming to him that God was indeed with him. God's saying, I'm still here. I haven't gone anyway. Just like in 2 Kings chapter 6. Remember the story there of Elisha and his servant and the enemies of Israel are approaching to kill them? Elisha prays, and God opens his servant's eyes for a moment, and he sees the hosts of heaven, the armies of God encamped on the hillsides. It's just like that here. For a split second, the spiritual realm is made visible, and Jacob's faith is encouraged. And so he names the place two camps because he says, it's not just my camp that's here in the wilderness. God is here as well. He knew he was not alone. You see, God is the one who had opened the wombs of his wives. God is the one who had prospered his herds. God is the one who had protected him from Laban. And now God was the one who would be with him as he faced up to the rage of Esau. God was going to fulfill his promise of blessing. His faith was encouraged. You see, trusting in God, it requires that we have faith in the invisible hand of God. When God asks you to trust his promises, when he tells you, I will be with you, I will protect you, when he tells you, I will raise you from the dead and give you a new body, that requires that we trust in something we can't always see. That's what faith is. For a split second here, God encourages his faith by giving him a glimpse beyond the curtain to see what's always there, the invisible presence of God. God's always active. What an encouragement that must have been. For his faith. <clears throat> and then after seeing God's messengers, Jacob sends out a few messengers of his own. Look in verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Jacob sends these messengers ahead with a message. They are to assure Esau that Jacob has plenty. He's not bragging when he says, hey, look at all this stuff I've got. What he's really saying is, hey, listen, I know that we've got a bad past, and I was always trying to cheat you out of what was yours, but I'm not here to take any of your stuff. I'm not here to deprive you of the inheritance. You can actually keep it 
because God's given me plenty. I have all that I need. And what I want is not your stuff, Esau. What I want is your favor. He comes with a message of humility and tells Esau that he wants to bury the hatchet. He wants to be at peace with him. And it's interesting, though the prophecy at their birth had declared that the older would serve the younger, and remember, they're twins, but Esau was born first, so he had that status of firstborn. But here, Jacob assumes a posture of humility and calls himself Esau's servant and refers to Esau as his lord and his master. He comes seeking peace, trusting that he doesn't have to assert himself as the one with priority. He's going to let God protect him and seek reconciliation. But Jacob's step of faith in, in presenting himself to Esau puts him at great risk. And his newly encouraged faith is about to be tested. Have you ever felt like that? You step out in faith, you trust God, and that's actually when things get hard. Well, you're in good company because that's what happens here to Jacob. His faith has been encouraged, but secondly now his faith is about to be tested in verse 6, and the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Notice what it says about Jacob. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. These messengers that Jacob sends, they return with an ominous report. Esau's coming with 400 men. And we don't know why. It doesn't seem that they ever got to Esau to deliver the message. As you can imagine, these few messengers came up over the hilltop, saw 400 men coming, and they didn't even stop to talk. They turned around and hightailed it back. You have to wonder, are, is this massive company of men coming to enact revenge? Or are they coming to give Jacob a royal reception? Well, Jacob fears the worst. He's convinced that time must not have healed Esau's wounds. It's actually made them worse And Jacob is not just afraid. According to verse 7, he is greatly afraid. And he's not just greatly afraid, he's greatly afraid and distressed. This is deep emotional turmoil. He's terrified of what could happen to him, to his wives, to his children, to everything that he has. He had trusted God and stepped out in faith, but look what that's gotten him into. His initial quick reaction is to split everybody up into two camps and try to limit the potential damage. He goes into damage control mode. Verse 7, he's greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. He's hoping that if worse comes to worse, maybe he can avoid being, being totally wiped out and losing everything. But after this initial move, Jacob does something that we haven't seen him do before. He prays. This didn't happen when his father attempted to bless his brother instead of him, despite the the word of God at their birth. We never saw him pray in that situation. This didn't happen when he fled and went to Haran. He didn't seek the Lord and pray and say, should I leave and go to another country? No, he took his mom's advice but never stopped to pray. He never prayed when he was entangled with Laban and oppressed, when Laban changed his wages ten times. But now, now, finally, under these circumstances, having stepped out in faith, his faith has been encouraged, now that faith is being tested, and now he prays. Rather than scheming or plotting or even running, he looks to God. 
Friends, this is faith in action. This ought to be our response under pressure. And this prayer is one of the most raw and poignant prayers, really, in all of Scripture. And there's a lot we can learn from it. There's very few times in the life of Jacob where you can say, he's being a good example. He's setting a good model for us. Most of the time, if, if you've been with us, it's like, don't be like Jacob, okay? But this is one of the few times where God has given us a beautiful model of faith under pressure. Look at his prayer. Look at the content of it. First of all, notice that he addresses God as the God of the covenant. Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. And that's not just a polite address. It's not just some formula. He's appealing to God's faithfulness and the promise to his fathers. He has a, a historical and theological awareness of who he is and whose shoulders he's standing on. God had called his grandfather Abraham out of Ur to come to Canaan and promised to bless him, to make him a great nation, to give him this land, and to bless all the families of the earth through him. And he's saying, God, you're the God who did so much for my grandfather, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He had confirmed the promise to Isaac, protected him, provided for him. And he's addressing that, that God. God, this is who you are, a God of great and precious promises. And your plans for history, your plans for your people, your plans for redemption, they all hinge on the promises that you made to my family. And now that's all in jeopardy. He addresses God as the God of the covenant. But he doesn't just appeal to God's historical promises. He appeals to the God of personal promise. God had not just made these promises to Abraham and Isaac. He'd made these promises to Jacob himself. He's the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac. Look at this. O Lord, Yahweh, that's the personal name of God. The personal God who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Saying, God, you told me to come back here. The only reason I'm in this situation is because I'm obeying you. I'm in a relationship with you. You promised to do me good, and you told me to come back. He's leaning on that personal relationship that he has with God and appealing to God on that basis. And then notice what he does next. Apart from his previous self-seeking, his previous pride, grasping for what he wants and what he thinks he deserves, Jacob confesses with profound humility that he is unworthy. He's not coming to God demanding anything. He's not coming to God with expectations of what God owes him. No, he says in verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Confesses his unworthiness of God's merciful blessing. This is no haughty demand. It's a humble request. And he's also implying, saying, God, everything that I have, all that I have, these people and these flocks, all that I'm concerned about, this is all that you have given me. I didn't deserve any of it, but you chose to give it to me, and now it's all in jeopardy. What of your purposes in blessing me? And then notice his urgent request. After acknowledging who God is and calling to mind God's promise to him and confessing his humility and, and, and demonstrating his gratitude for all that God has given him, now he makes his urgent request in verse 11. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me 
the mothers with the children. You know, Jacob is honest about his fears. He makes his urgent request, please deliver me. But he doesn't pretend like, but if not, that's okay because I don't care either way. I've, I've got all this under control. No, he's honest. He pours out his soul before God for I fear him. And he appeals to God's mercy. He says, look, I've got women and children with me. You're a compassionate God. I know that it would not please you to see them cut down by my brother's rage. Have mercy on us, God. Here is our urgent request. And then he concludes by appealing once again to the word of God in verse 12. He acknowledges in verse 11 the danger that Esau is coming to attack them. Verse 12 says, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. See, what's interesting about this, he's not, he's not only reminding God of what he said because it helps Jacob. He's saying, God, listen, your interests are actually in jeopardy here. If Jacob is attacked, it's not just that there would be a tragic loss of life. It's that God's word would be broken. And that's a big deal. It's that God's faithfulness would be revealed to be faulty. That God's very integrity would be compromised. God, Esau is coming to attack me, but you said that you were going to bless me and give me many offspring. That promise cannot come true if Esau comes to destroy us. God, for the sake of your name, for your faithfulness, because of your integrity, do what you have promised. Is this how you respond to crisis? Do you respond in prayer, a God-centered prayer that clings by faith to the promises of God, that comes to God with his word on your lips saying, God, this is what you have said. Bring it to pass. Do you honestly pour out your heart to him and humbly acknowledge his past mercy upon you as you ask for future grace? When our faith is tested, this is the kind of prayer it should produce. But what then? What do you do after you pray? What did Jacob do after praying? You know what we don't see in chapter 32? We don't see an answer from God. Maybe you can relate. You're down on your knees. You're spilling your guts. You're begging God to keep his promises and show mercy. And then you stand up and walk out of the room and you've heard nothing. God doesn't speak back. There's no vision there's no confirmation. Why? Why is that? We have to remember that God has already told Jacob everything that he needed to know. And he's done the same for us. He'd given him covenant promises. He had affirmed his presence with the vision of these angels. Jacob even had his own history of experiencing God's faithfulness and his protection. And that was enough. That was enough for him. Is it enough for us? Is it enough for us to look back to the promises of God, to know who our God is and how he operates, to look back on the testimony of his faithfulness in scripture and even our own experience of God's faithfulness as he's, he's kept his promises and always taken care of us. When we get down and beg God to meet our needs and show his grace and be faithful in the future, he doesn't always answer because he's already told us everything that we need to know. Jacob had God's word, 
And now God expected Jacob to step forward in faith, even in the face of this threat, believing that God would keep his word. And amazingly, that's what Jacob does. After responding in prayer, pouring out his soul, he stands up and faces the music. He faces the threat. Look in verse 13. So he stayed there that night. Is that what you would do? If you knew 400 people were coming to kill you and your family, would you stay or would you run? I think it's an expression of Jacob's faith that he's expecting God to keep his word. He stays there that night. He does stay there. He doesn't run, but that doesn't mean he does nothing. He does make an effort to extend, to extend himself to Esau in humility, to win his favor. We won't read through uh, everything here, but he sends about 550 animals in different droves to his brother as sort of a peace offering to atone for his previous sins against his brother and to try to make things right and demonstrate his heart of repentance towards his brother. It's a present for him. And his hope, we see in verse 20, he thought, perhaps I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, verse 21, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Jacob says, you know what, I'm going to do what's right, I'm going to do what I can on my part, but I'm trusting God and staying here, expecting him to work. Perhaps Esau will accept me. There's a lot of uncertainty here, but Jacob knows he must move forward. No tricks, no gimmicks. If he's ever going to return to the promised land, he has to obey the command of God and trust him and has to face Esau. His faith has been encouraged. Now his faith is being tested. When your faith is tested, do you respond in prayer? Do you wait on the Lord? That's what God desires. And as we'll see here, that's what God responds to because Third, we see that not only has his faith been encouraged and then tested, but in what happens next, in this remarkable experience that Jacob has, his faith is deepened. His faith is deepened. And here's where we see this powerful truth that trusting in God leads to transformation by God. At the end of the night, everyone is sent ahead and Jacob finds himself alone. It says in verse 22, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, interesting play on words there. Jacob is at the Jabbok, would have helped them to remember this story as they told it throughout the generations. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. We'll stop right there. At the end of the night, everyone's moved on ahead. They've crossed the river. They're ready to face Esau, and Jacob is alone. Perhaps he's double-checking the campground one last time. You know, that's what dads do when you go on trips. You know, check the hotel room, make sure we didn't leave anything behind. Hey, there was a sock under the bed. Maybe that's what he's doing. Perhaps he couldn't sleep. Perhaps the crushing weight of anxiety and fear and apprehension. You know, that's a good recipe for insomnia. If you've ever been nervous about something, it's hard to sleep. Perhaps he's rehearsing his plans, imagining what he could possibly say to Esau and what they would do if they are attacked. Maybe he's walking through with that terrifying weight of expectation on his shoulders, thinking back and remembering his past, remembering why it is that Esau is so angry with him. Maybe he's wrestling with the guilt and the shame of his previous deception, his lies, his cheating, scheming ways. 
realizing that he had created all this mess. Maybe it's a little bit of all of the above. You know, we're not really told why he's alone, but we're told that he is alone at night in the camp, preparing to face a dangerous opponent in his brother Esau. But Jacob is not alone for long. What happens next is really one of the most mysterious and remarkable stories in all of Scripture because what happens next, this, not facing Esau, is actually the climax of the story. This is the high point. Though he was anticipating meeting his brother, he's actually going to meet God. And his encounter with God, not his encounter with Esau, is what is so significant about this chapter of his life. We see this mysterious combat in verses 24 and 25. Jacob was left alone, and it says very mysteriously that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. It's interesting, too, that word for wrestle is yabek. So Yaakov, Jacob, crossed the Yabak, the river, and Yabek wrestled with this man. There's all this kind of rhyming in Hebrew. We can't really see it in English, but it does just help tie everything together. And he's locked in combat with this mysterious man. And wrestling here is such a fitting metaphor. Wrestling is unique. Unlike any other sort of conflict or competition, wrestling is hand-to-hand combat. Strength against strength. And strategy against strategy. See, if you're the strongest guy in the world, but if you're dumb, you're going to lose a wrestling match. I'm not a wrestling expert, but I know somebody who is. We have a, a, someone here with us today who coaches wrestling at a high level. And wrestling is, is so unique. You know, you can have guys in, in football who maybe aren't the, the sharpest tool in the shed, but they're big enough and strong enough to just run over everybody. And, and maybe you have, you know, somebody in basketball who's really, really smart and they know all the strategy, and they have the plays memorized. Their technique is perfect. But if you're slow and can't jump, it's not going to help you, right? But in wrestling, it takes strength and skill to use your leverage against your opponent, to find his weaknesses and exploit them. It takes strategy and cunning, but it also takes strength because you have to be able to physically overpower your competitor. And that's a beautiful and perfect and fitting analogy really for Jacob's life. It's a fitting climax to his story because Jacob is the grabber, the grasper. He came out wrestling, grabbing his brother by the heel. He's one who by his self-reliance, by his strength, this is a guy who can roll away that big stone from the well without any help, right? And this is a guy who outsmarted all his opponents. I mean, this is someone who's always relied on himself to achieve the victory in life. But now he's finally met his match, someone he will not be able to get the upper hand on. As the narrative progresses, it becomes clear that this man is, in fact, God in human form. This is the big word for this is a theophany, an appearance of God in the flesh in the Old Testament. This is Jesus before he was born, wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob's life of conflict with others now reaches the final test as he's locked in conflict with God. And it's a long combat. It says they wrestled until the breaking of the day. Cody told me 11 minutes is the max, right? 11 minutes is the max for a collegiate wrestling match. And that's with all the overtimes. It's exhausting. If you've ever wrestled, it's an exhausting, exhausting, demanding activity. It takes all your strength, every muscle. You can't let up. You can't have any rest. Otherwise, someone will take advantage of it. These guys wrestled all the way through the night. Indicative here of Jacob's human strength and his stubborn will that he wouldn't quit. He would not tap out. 
But then there's this stunning blow. It says in verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. What a unique injury. I asked Cody if he'd ever seen a dislocated hip in wrestling. He said, no. I mean, that's one of the strongest joints in your body. You can dislocate a finger, maybe even dislocate, you know, an elbow or something like that. But to dislocate a hip, to fully come out of your pelvis, that doesn't happen very often. I remember when I was a kid, Bo Jackson was one of my favorite athletes because I loved the Royals. And Bo Jackson was a Royal. He could throw somebody out from the warning track and he could hit it onto I-70. I loved Bo Jackson. And he could run, and he was strong. But I hated it that he played for the Raiders during football season because I was also a Chiefs fan. Bo Jackson had this hip injury. He was so powerful as he's running down the sideline, you know, huge 250-pound man wrapped up his legs. And as he was running, he literally ran out of his hip. That bone popped out and then popped back in. He was never the same again, even after surgery. He was never the same. That's kind of like the injury here that Jacob has where his hip is dislocated. Now imagine if you're wrestling and now you can't push off that leg. Imagine if you're wrestling and any time your enemy grabs that leg to move it, it sends piercing, shooting, excruciating pain through your entire body. Game over for Jacob, right? His hip is dislocated. But this injury reveals the divine power of his assailant. This is no ordinary man. Nobody can just touch your hip and cause it to become dislocated. This is God himself. And I think Jacob is starting to realize it's no ordinary man that he's wrestling with. But we have to stop and ask, okay, so this is what's happening, but why? Why would God come and wrestle against Jacob? Why would God dislocate his hip? Why didn't God just win the wrestling match in, you know, 0.2 seconds like we know he can? Well, I think we need to step back and evaluate what's going on in Jacob's life. God had promised Jacob this land, the land of Canaan. And Jacob is now on the border, ready to enter in. But now God himself is actually opposing Jacob as Jacob tries to enter and obey. Why is that? Consider this. Though Jacob has been chosen by grace, there is still much within Jacob that God opposes. And there is much in Jacob that must change. Jacob trusts in his own strength. He trusts his own cunning. And as God touches his hip, as he wounds him, as he makes him weak and limited, this is divine power under control, right? I mean, God could have ended his life. God could have taken him apart, molecule by molecule, but he doesn't. This divine touch wounds him intentionally. To the exact degree that God desired. In the exact way that God desired. You see, God's not trying to win the wrestling match. He's trying to change the man. To teach him something that he desperately needed to learn. That he is not strong. And that he can't win. And that he needs to stop trusting himself. August Dillman observes, If it were only a matter of mere strength then God let him know that he would never enter the land. That's not how it works, Jacob. That's not how it works. It's only with the blessing of God that Jacob can receive what has been promised to him. And that blessing must be received by faith. It cannot be taken by force. This is a life lesson Jacob needed to learn. In order to enter in, he must be changed. He must learn to receive, to confess his weakness, to depend on God. And not to take what he wanted by the force of his will and his strength. 
And this encounter with God is going to teach him this lesson. We see two demands here. Jacob makes a demand and this mysterious assailant makes a demand. In verse 26, the silence is broken as God speaks. He says in verse 26, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man demanded that Jacob release him, knowing that this is a theophany, an appearance of God. We can assume that the darkness of night concealed his face. Jacob didn't know who he was wrestling with. And it shows us God's desire to conceal his identity and to avoid the light. It's probably for Jacob's protection. Exodus 33.20 says, you cannot see my face. This is God speaking to Moses. Moses said, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll make my glory pass behind you, but it's just going to be the back of me. And I have to hide you in the rock so that you even survive that. God says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So it's probably for Jacob's own protection that God says, let me go. It's getting light, and you don't want to be around when that happens. You don't want me to still be here. And I think that that started to reveal his identity to Jacob. His identity will be revealed in other ways, though, not by sight. Uh, But Jacob also has demand. The the man says, let me go. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I think the dislocation of his hip had alerted him to the fact, this is no ordinary man. And he's starting to get the idea, there's something divine about my opponent. And Jacob says, I need his blessing. If that's who he is, I need his blessing. He had spent his whole life seeking blessing, right? He had deceived his father and cheated his brother in order to get it. He had sought blessing every time before through illegitimate means. But the blessing he needed most wasn't the blessing of Isaac. The blessing he needed most was the blessing of God. And that's what he's now realizing. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until I get what I need more than anything else in the world. Divine blessing. You see, with his hip now being dislocated, his struggle is changing. No longer is he fighting against God. Now he's pleading with God. His strength, what remained of it, must be put to new use. Not grasping and striving for his own purposes, but clinging to God and seeking the blessing that comes only from him. We see then that God responds with a question. Verse 27, he demands to know Jacob's name. He says, what is your name? Jacob answers, he says, Jacob. Now, let me ask you this. Does God not know what his name is? No. Okay, so there's something else going on here, right? Why is he asking Jacob his name? When Jacob answers this question, not only is he submitting himself to this this mysterious person, but his response is really a confession. Remember what his name means? The deceiver, the heel grabber. The one who's always tripping everybody else up in order to advance himself. And as he confesses his name and speaking his name, Jacob is owning up to who he has been all of his life. As Esau had bitterly observed earlier, is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob says, the shoe fits. I am Jacob. It's a confession of his character and of his past. Now, God knew his name, but God wanted Jacob to acknowledge it, to confess his character, and then to contrast who Jacob was with who Jacob was to become. Jacob was the heel grabber, the one who tripped up his brother, who deceived and defrauded, who battled with his father, brother, uncle. He was now battling with God, but he's no longer going to be a Jacob. He will be Israel. 
Verse 28, look at this. It's beautiful. The grace of God in changing a man. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. There's a play on words, words here. The, the name Israel means God contends. God fights. Or, or may God contend. May he fight. It says, Jacob, you're a fighter. You've always been a striver, striving with God and men. You're too stubborn to even let me go. But I'm changing your name. Because I want you to know that it's God. It's his strength. It's his victory. It's his striving that is going to bring about the blessing that you seek. And the fulfillment of the promises that you're looking for. This play on words would be a perpetual reminder to Jacob of not only his experience here, but also of the fact that it all depends on God. Jacob was changing from one who wrestled with everyone to a man who would now let God fight his battles for him. In turn, Jacob requests his name. Jacob asked him, please tell me, in verse 29, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. I think the non-answer of this man confirmed to Jacob that this was indeed no ordinary man. And so he names the place Peniel. Means literally the face of God. He says, I can't believe what just happened to me. I came face to face with God and I'm still breathing. My heart's still beating. And I'm still Alive. There's a sense of both fear, that he can't believe that just happened to him, a sense of awe, but there's also a new confidence here. I mean, think about it. If he could see the face of God and be delivered, seeing the face of his brother Esau, that's nothing. That's nothing. Why be afraid of that once he has survived this encounter? If God had spared him here, delivered him here, then he could know that God would deliver him from his brother as well. There's a new sense of reverence, but also new confidence here as he names this place. And we see in verse verse 31 and 32 that as the sun rises, it's a new day, and he's a new man with a new name. It's so fitting and poetic here in verse 31. It says, the sun rose upon him as he passed, as he passed Penuel, which is another alternate spelling pronunciation of Peniel. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. He's not walking off into the sunset. The story's not over. This is a new beginning as he walks into the sunrise. New day, a new name that described the new character and the new identity and the new destiny that he had. God was changing him. God was changing him. With his hip dislocated, his strength left him. But so did his stubborn self-confidence. And now just as he could no longer trust that leg to lean on, he understood that neither now could he lean on his own understanding or depend on his own cunning. He was crippled in body, but now clinging to God in faith, looking to him for blessing. Jacob had met his match in God, and what resulted was a new name, a new identity, and an affirmation of his destiny as the bearer of God's covenant promises. Now Jacob had blessing freely given. There God, in verse 29, had blessed him. Not because Jacob tricked him or deceived him, but because he sought him desperately by faith and said, God, I need what only you can give me. 
So he's a changed man, weaker in body, but stronger in faith. And this event was so significant to the life of Jacob, to the history of Israel, that even their dietary regulations would reflect it. It says in verse 32, Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh, that is, of the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. I mean, this is not something that ended up being part of the Mosaic law, but by tradition, all the descendants of Israel, this man, they wouldn't eat that part of the body because this was so significant. This is where Jacob met God. And this is where Jacob was changed from a deceiver to one who knew that God would fight his battles for him. His faith had been encouraged, then tested, and then deepened. And then we finally see that his faith is rewarded. We'll fly through chapter 33. His faith is rewarded. We see that trusting God not only leads to transformation by God, but when you trust in God, it leads to an experience of God's faithfulness. Jacob had received grace from God, and now he stepped forward to face his brother, and he needs to receive grace and favor from his brother. And as, we meet, as they meet, we see a man that's been changed. Though he's not perfect, he has a new character. In verse 1, he lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, 400 men with him. You see that Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel, the two female servants. You see in verses 2 and 3 that he splits everybody up, and as he goes now before them. He's not in the rear, he's at the head. And he's bowing himself to the ground seven times. And as they meet, it's really beautiful what happens. He's expecting an attack. Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Why? It's because he was buttered up by all the gifts that Jacob sent ahead? No. This is the grace of God. This is God saying, I am with you. And I will protect you. And I will fulfill my promises to you. Everything to this point has led us to think <clears throat> that Esau is coming for payback. But what happens is the total opposite. It's just like the father of the prodigal son who sees him a long way off and runs to him, throws his arms around him, kisses him on the cheek, and weeps on his shoulder. The two brothers are reconciled. And this is God's doing. This is God's doing. And it's funny, there's a reversal here. You know, Jacob had insisted when he wrestled with God, he had insisted that God bless him. I won't let you go until you bless me. But here with Esau, he insists that Esau receive his blessing. He's no longer demanding things from his brother. He's no longer a taker. He's a giver. Esau lifts up his eyes in verse 5. <clears throat> sees the women, the children. He says, who are these with you? Jacob says, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. We see in verse 6, the servants, their children draw near. Verse 7, Leah and her family. And then there's all the herds coming. You know, Joseph and Rachel, everyone's there. Verse 8, Esau says, what do you mean by all this company that I have met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He's saying, all this stuff, all these herds are for you. 550 animals, most of them female, so that they could breed and you can even have more. He's giving him a huge present. But Esau says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Sounds like an older brother, right? I don't need your stuff, man. I'm fine. Keep it. Keep it. But Jacob here insists. He says, no, please. Verse 10. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. He says, man, I faced God, and God accepted me, and I faced you, who also had the power of my life in your hands, and you have accepted me. Please take it. Please accept my blessing, verse 11, that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. He took it. So he insists on blessing Esau. He's not trying to cheat his brother anymore. 
showing humility, making things right. In verses 12 through 17, we won't read it, but Esau invites him to journey with him and to go back to his home in, in Edom, in Seir. And Jacob declines. He's cautious. I think he has a reason to be cautious. He got all entangled with his father-in-law in a land that wasn't his, and that was a mess. And he says, I'm not going to go become entangled with my brother in a land that's not mine. He's a little cautious there, but you also see his covenant loyalty to God. He says, no, God wants me to go to Canaan. That's where I'm going. And we see him in verses 18 through 20. He finally gets to the land, and there he purchases land. Look in verse 18. He comes safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. It's not just historical details. This is loaded with covenant grace. God brought him back to Canaan. Remember the promise at Bethel? That I will bring you back to this land with many descendants and make you great and bless you and bless all the world through you. He's back in Canaan. On his way from Paddan Aram, he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. He's not just in the land. He's a landowner. God's starting to fulfill even that promise to inherit the land. And it says in verse 20, there he erected an altar and called it El Elohei Israel. God, the God of Israel. That's what that means. Just like his grandfather Abraham had bought land and built an altar as a testimony to his faith that God would give him this land, Jacob does the same thing. And he names this altar God, the God of Israel. God is the God of Israel. The one who fights, he is my God. Remember back at Bethel, God had promised to give them this land. And Jacob had said, if you do all this for me, if you bring me back, you will be my God. And here he keeps his vow and binds himself to his covenant God. He is now at peace with God and at peace with Esau. And he's a changed man. This account provides a fitting parable, really, for the future nation that would come through Jacob. That nation, Israel, that would bear his name. Their very name was to be a perpetual reminder of the source of their final victory. You know, they would struggle against antagonistic nations. They'd be enslaved by the Egyptians. They'd be oppressed by the Philistines and the Midianites. They'd be even taken captive by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They would stumble and fall. They would deal with internal wars and rebellion and idolatry. But the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bless Israel would depend on God's strength, on God fighting for them. On his power, not on theirs. As it says in Zechariah 4, 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Listen, it doesn't depend on you, people of Israel. It depends on me, and I will do it. And the same is true for us as God's people today. I mean, hear this this morning. Be encouraged by this this morning. The one who fights our battles is God. It's God. It's not by our strength that we are saved. Aren't you thankful? It's not by our cunning and our wisdom that we overcome the enemy and reach our final and eternal rest and inherit all of God's blessings. Aren't you glad? It's not by our power that death is defeated. It's not by our power that sin is destroyed and atoned for. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We have a Savior who is crucified and rose again, and he has achieved the victory for us. God fights our battles, and it depends on his strength. But here's the problem. We, like Jacob, have a disease called self-reliance. 
We try to handle everything in our strength. We try to solve everything by our wisdom. And sometimes the only way to cure us of this foolish pride is for God to cripple us, to bring pain into our lives, to prove to us that we can't do it, that our strength is not sufficient, and that we need him. This process can be painful, can't it? Some of you have tasted that. But it results in the shaping of our character into what God intends. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God wants to change you. Sometimes that process hurts. Have you come to God and placed your trust in him? Are you a believer this morning? Have you confessed your sin and received that gift of salvation, given yourself to God? If so, then you have to understand that God is more committed to your holiness than he is to your five-year plan. God cares more about your character than about your comfort. His plan is to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. And sometimes that hurts. It hurts because it takes the pain of disillusionment to cure us of our self-centered idolatry. Sometimes God has to pop those bubbles, those dreams that we have, what we think life should look like. Sometimes God has to pry our fingers off of those idols that we cling to so that he can put something better in its place, namely himself. Sometimes it takes the slow burn of relational difficulty to purge us, to purify us. Sometimes it takes the trauma of some crisis, maybe even physical pain, to awaken us from our spiritual sleep, to cure us of our self-reliance, to convince us of our weakness and our need and of God's strength and God's sufficiency. The wise and godly among us often walk with a limp. Do you run from that or do you embrace that? Do you cling to God tenaciously? Do you seek the blessing that only comes from him, even if it means you get wounded in the process? If you lean in to God's purifying and pruning work in your life, you will be different. You will be changed. Trusting in God, it means you'll be transformed by God. You may experience wounding. But you will know God and you will emerge confident in his promises and in his care for you. Trusting in God leads to transformation by God. Those who receive his grace will be changed by his grace. But when you encounter God, it's not just a limp that you come away with. Like Jacob, we also get a new name. We get a new name. With the pain of repentance comes eternal gain for us. The renaming of Israel is really a beautiful picture of what happens to all of us when we are born again. When we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ, we become new, new life in Christ. When we come to him in faith, we experience the Holy Spirit's work of transformation. And you know what we get? A new identity. We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He puts his name on us because we belong to him and because we're different. We're changed. Who we are now is not who we were. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new 
has come. God does that. That's a miracle. Those who confess their past and acknowledge their sin are ready to be given a new name. As someone shared in our small group this last week, that's not who I am anymore. And God can do the same thing for you too. Isn't that an encouraging truth? What a hope that we have in Christ and in the gospel. Those who know their need are ready to receive God's grace. Those who confess their weakness are made strong by God's spirit. We may walk with a limp, but we are a people who have been given a new identity and a new destiny as heirs of God's grace. An eternal inheritance, forgiveness of sin, life with Christ. You know, sometimes God has to cripple us to bless us. We should actually be thankful for that. If left strong and self-sufficient, we would never seek him. We would live under the foolish delusion that we can actually do it by ourselves. And we would lack our sense of need and weakness that's so necessary to receive grace. But in God's wisdom and mercy, he lovingly pursues us. He draws us to himself. And as we trust in him, you know what happens? We're changed. We're changed forever, made to be what he intends, both for his glory and for our good. God in heaven, we thank you that you do pursue us and that you love us enough even to bring pain into our lives, the kind of pain that makes us aware of our need for you. Lord, you are sufficient, you are strong, you are able, and we need you. We confess our need for you this morning and ask, we ask that you would help us to cling to you by faith, to tenaciously never let go, to seek the blessing that only you can give. I pray, God, if there's any here who don't know you today, who are still living in their old nature, that sinful nature, Pray that today they would trust in you for salvation, that they would look to the cross and trust in the shed blood of Jesus to atone for their sins and trust in his resurrection to give them new life. Pray that they would come and receive your name on them and become new and join us as we walk as a redeemed community, sometimes limping, but always changing to become more like our Savior Jesus. We pray that you would continue your purpose of transformation in us for your glory and strengthen our faith as we walk by faith. We pray all this in your name. Amen.